0: Our scripture reading today is from Galatians five sixteen through 25. So I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity... If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, it's been four years, almost to the day, since I graduated from seminary. Four years since I sat at a desk, heart pounding, palms sweating, anxiety swirling. In other words, four years since I took my last test. Is there anything worse? then those few seconds pause when the teacher has finished giving the instructions about the test and then goes to hand the test out. It it almost seems like time just stops in those moments. And and you can almost hear everyone's thoughts. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. I mean, right? Even if you took your last test years ago, I'm guessing you remember that feeling. Once in college, a professor of mine gave an incredibly difficult test immediately following Christmas break to prove the point that we needed to have studied over break to retain the material. Uh, He was right. I literally handed that test in blank. Zero percent. Whoa. (laughs) Almost got attacked there by this microphone. Zero percent on that test, right? Maybe some of you have a similar uh, story that you could tell. And then there's standardized testing. That's a bit of a controversial topic, I know, but I found this 2016 article from The Atlantic interesting. Eight out of 10 teachers think that there are too many state-mandated tests. Eight out of 10, I got a clap from a, from a teacher there. That's 80%, 80% better than I got on that test in college. Your teachers surveyed were frustrated by the time they had to dedicate the test prep by the changing demands outside of the classroom and by the fact that they didn't get much of a say at all in major decisions about standardized testing. But to me, the most interesting concern from the article was actually related to the students. While not a focus of the survey, many teachers made sure to voice their concerns that standardized testing may not be the best tool to evaluate students. Which again, this is a layered conversation, but if that's true, If standardized tests are a suboptimal evaluation mechanism, then we've got a serious problem, don't we? Because there's a danger that we might dub someone unworthy because of that test. A danger that we might deny someone an opportunity that would lead to their flourishing because of that test. And on the other side, there is also the the very real danger that we might pass the test but fail at life. The danger that we might pass the test but, but fail at life. Have you ever noticed that Christians contend in that direction? Christians that get so concerned about believing rightly that they forget to live rightly? That Christians can sometimes teach to the test and in the process forget about what the point of the test actually is? The Apostle Paul was concerned about this for the Galatian Christians. He knew that this was a very real and present danger and it's one of the reasons why he wrote to them. We're nearing the end of our study of this ancient letter of Galatians from the Apostle Paul to churches in the region of Galatia that he helped to start. Churches that he loved very deeply. And to this point in the letter, Paul has been laying the groundwork of right belief. You see, it's not that right belief, that right knowing is not important for Paul. It's, it's the place where he begins all of his letters. We do have to believe rightly. But the key part is that it never ends there for Paul. Paul never teaches to the test. Paul always, without fail, moves from right belief to right living. From right belief to right living. Because you see, Paul knows the gospel changes you to live rightly. The gospel changes you to live rightly. At the beginning of this teaching series, we summarize the gospel in this way. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which, if you trust him above all others, saves you from sin and gives you new life now. And chapters 1 through 4 of Galatians unpacks the various layers of the gospel, and it also shows all that happens when you miss it. Paul's big idea, his main point of Galatians 1 through 4, is that when you add to the gospel, you actually take away from it. When you add to the gospel, you actually subtract from it. That's the summary of the first four chapters, and now in chapter 5, he moves on to the last part of our definition, the new life. What is the new life in Jesus that's granted by the gospel? Well, the beginning of chapter 5, what we covered last week, we, we discover that this new life in Jesus is a life of freedom. And freedom is not, we think it might be, but it's not, it's not doing whatever we want to do with no constraints. That ends up just being a sneaky form of slavery. But true freedom in Jesus is freedom to love, to serve, to sacrifice. And now in our passage for this morning, which Adam read for us a moment ago, Galatians 5, verses 16 through 25, Paul continues to unpack this new life in Jesus by giving us four keys to living a changed life. Because again, the gospel changes you to live rightly. The gospel changes you to live rightly. But how does it do that? Well, key number one, key number one to living a changed life by the gospel is to know that you are in a battle. Know you are in a battle. Look back with me at our passage, Galatians 5. Start at verse 17 with me. Follow along. And that verse reads this way For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. You see, inside each and every Christian, there is a constant battle carrying on, waging war. A war between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. Now, now flesh is a hard word. It's a bit of a strange one. So what does Paul mean by it? Well, it's not our physical nature. It's not our physical bodies. And Paul is not anti-body, the Bible is not anti-body or anti-matter, rather the word flesh refers to the sin-desiring aspect of our being. The sin-desiring aspect of our being. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrase, he refers to the the flesh as the root of sinful self-interest, which is helpful. The root of sinful self-interest. The flesh is the part of every Christian that yet still turns away from God, rebels against God, rages against God. The flesh is the part of every Christian that keeps them from doing what they want to do, as Paul says at the end of verse 17. But thankfully, thankfully Christians find another nature at work within them, their new nature characterized by the Spirit. Author and pastor Tim Keller is helpful here. He writes this, he says, There are two natures at work in every Christian, The spirit and the sinful nature. And at any point in our life, we will live by one and not gratify the other. Now, I think the key part of this quote is that Keller names that these two natures are always at work, they are always present. And so, at any given point, literally at any second, we are living by one, which means we're not gratifying, we're not living by the other. Or we might say it this way. There are no timeouts in the Christian life. There are no timeouts in the Christian life. There are no ceasefires. There is no neutral zone. We are either gaining ground, becoming more and more like Jesus by the power of the Spirit, or we are losing ground, gratifying and living by our sinful desires. We forget this, don't we? We do. We think that this decision is not a big deal. Or that compromise, oh, that's not really going to, to make me not like Jesus. Or this won't be that big of a problem. Or that, we do this, don't we? We forget that there are no time outs in the Christian life. We are either gaining ground or we are losing ground. We are either living by the Spirit or we are gratifying the desires of our sinful nature. When we forget this, when we trick ourselves into thinking, that it's not a big deal or that there is a timeout, or that there's a ceasefire now or if we forget that we're in a battle. When we forget this, then it's all too easy to surrender to our sinful nature, which ends up, which results in a life characterized by our sinful nature. And Paul goes on to describe this type of life. Verses 19 through 21, he says, this life is obvious, it's evident. His point is this, you know this life when you see it. You know it when you see it. And then he does go on, he lists off some of the characteristics of this life in verses 19 through 21, and it's a long list. I mean, Adam just kept reading and reading and reading. He lists off 15 individual things, but at the end of verse 21, did you notice, he makes sure to say that this list is not exhaustive. The end of verse 21 says, and things like these. In other words, I could go on and on, Paul says, and you could too because you know this life when you've seen it. You know this life when you see it. And we don't have time to go example by example, and that's not really Paul's point anyway. But instead, just notice one fascinating thing with me regarding this list. This blows me away. Because going over the list in verses 19 through 21, you you can't miss it. Both irreligious people and religious people find themselves on this list. There are sins that are more characteristic of those who we would describe as religious. Sins such as selfishness, envy, jealousy, cliques, maybe factions. If you've been around church for any length of time, you've seen those sins at work, haven't you? But there's also sins on the list that are more characteristic of those who would decry religion. And who would pursue a, quote, free life. Sins such as sexual immorality or substance abuse. And this is a significant point in both directions because you see, Paul doesn't care whether you are a religious person or whether you you won't give religion the time of day. He just doesn't care. Paul names the work of the sinful nature that he sees in both groups, and he calls everyone to live a better, fuller, changed life by the power of the Spirit. Now, a piercing application of this observation is that you're on the list. You're on the list. And I'm on the list. Because Paul is an equal opportunity sin lister and nails both religious and irreligious people, every single one of us can find something in verses 19 through 21 that we are guilty of. Chances are you did. Adam's reading and you're like, yep, yep. Well, I mean, not this week, but last week. We all did that. All of us are guilty. None of us are immune. Which is humbling, but it's also incredibly overwhelming, isn't it? It'd be defeating if we stopped there, because if we're all in a battle and if we're all on this list, then how do we win the battle? Are we just destined to lose it? Well Paul doesn't think so. Because yes, the first key to living a changed life is to never forget that you're in a battle, know you're in a battle. But the second key is this: know that you're not fighting alone. You're not fighting alone. I'm not fighting alone. That's the second key to living a changed life. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Yes, we're in a battle, but we're not fighting it solo. And it's important to note that when it comes to this battle, between the two natures within us, we, we might trick ourselves into thinking that it's strictly good versus evil. It's the good part of us versus the evil part of us. It's the bad versus the good that's within us. But it's not. You see, it's a battle between our sinful nature and between the Holy Spirit, God himself. So yes, we are in a battle against our sin natures, but we're fighting that battle with the God of the universe, literally living within inside of us. I mean, how incredible is that? I don't think we should miss, we can't miss in fact, the centrality of the Holy Spirit to Paul's argument in Galatians broadly and then to this passage this morning specifically. The Holy Spirit is all over this letter to these ancient churches. A broadly and a very accurate summary of the entire letter of Galatians would be this. Galatians is about the possibility of new life in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That's your one sentence summary of the book of Galatians. It's about the possibility of new life in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is all over the place, broadly in Galatians, and specifically in this passage, maybe you noticed as Adam read it, you find the word spirit an incredible seven times in just ten verses. Seven times in ten verses, because Paul does not want you to miss it. The Holy Spirit is how the gospel changes us to live rightly. The Holy Spirit is how living a free life of love is possible. The Holy Spirit is how we say no to our sin desires and say yes to God by the glorious and unmatched power of the Holy Spirit, an unparalleled battle partner. There is no one that I would rather go to war with against myself than the Holy Spirit. And the imagery that Paul uses to describe our battle partner of the Holy Spirit and and how we and how we engage with our battle partner, the imagery, the image that Paul sets forward for us is that of a walk. That of a walk. Verse 16 again, the beginning says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Now, when it comes to walking, I'm more like George and Jerry from Seinfeld than I am like Bill Gorman. You all know that Bill loves hiking, right? In fact, him and his family, like right now, at this literal minute, are probably hiking. They're on a vacation, they're trekking across the U.S., they're hitting six new national parks. I mean, quite probably right now, they're, they're actually walking while we're sitting here. The Gorman family, I did not have to go far to find this pic- picture on Facebook, <laughs> right? I mean, there's like the first one right there. The Gorman family are all about walking. But George and Jerry from Seinfeld, not so much, right? I resonate with them, I'm with these guys, and not only do they spend an inordinate amount of their lives just sitting in their apartment doing nothing and and not walking, but there's actually an entire scene, And, and folks, I looked for it, I spent time this week trying to find it, I'm sorry I failed, but there's an entire scene where they have a conversation about how they would enjoy walking a lot more if there were people movers that were installed all over the city of New York. I'm in with them on this idea. I don't know how much it costs. It probably isn't cost effective, but I think I'd walk more if there were people movers all over Kansas City. So I'm more like George and Jerry, not like the Gorman family. But I wonder if I'm missing something. Because not only is walking incredibly good for your health, get those steps in, people, right? Walking is a major theme, a major metaphor in the Bible. A while back, I just started circling every time I saw the word walk in the Bible you circle a lot when you do that it's all over the place and most often it's used as this beautiful metaphor for our our journey our long obedience in the same direct same direction toward God walking with and walking toward God it's a good metaphor isn't it because think about what it is to learn to walk it's a struggle there's a lot of falling down and there's a lot of getting back up again and we learn to walk best don't we When we rely on someone stronger than us, someone more skilled than us, someone more accomplished than us, and this is why Paul shifts the metaphor ever so slightly in verse 18. Did you notice that? In verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, he says that we are led by the Spirit. That's beautiful, isn't it? Because you're still walking, but you're not in charge. You're not leading out. The Holy Spirit is. He's leading, guiding, directing. I mean, it's a lot like me and my 15 month old son, Owen. When he took his first steps, it was, with his, it was with his fingers in my hands. It was as I led him. And even now, several months later, even though he can walk on his own, he still walks a whole heck of a lot better if I lead him. Now, this metaphor does break down with me and Owen. Because growth for Owen as he walks eventually means that he's not going to need my help anymore to walk. That's growth for Owen. Eventually, I'm not going to help him anymore. Now, he still needs my help right now, for sure. I mean, even lately, what's been happening in our backyard is his brother will be swinging back and forth. And Owen's kind of over the swing right now, and so he wants to get to the slide. And so he starts walking across the path where the swing is swinging to get to the slide. And, and because the swing is not there right now, he's gonna be safe, right? That's, that's in his mind. But he has no idea that that swing is coming to destroy him in three, two, one, and then, and then whoosh, right? I, I come in and I, I save him, I save the day. And do you know how he repays me? You know how he thanks me for saving him? He yells at me. He gets so mad that I impeded his brilliant walking progress. How dare you, dad? I know how to walk, and and I swear, one of these days, I'm just going to let it all play out, right? I'm just not going to save the day. I'm going to let the swing come in, and then boom. I mean, he'll never do that again. Okay, I won't do that. I won't do that. He needs my help now, but he won't in the future, right? That's growth for him. It'd be odd, it'd be a failure of me as a parent if I still had to hold his hand as he walked across the graduation stage in 17 years. But see, with us and God, it's actually the exact opposite, isn't it? Because growth for us as we walk means that we realize more and more and more that we want to be led by the Spirit. Growth for you and I in the Spirit means I'm like, hey, I'm good not being on my own. I need you, Spirit. Lead me, guide me, direct me. All the more, never let my hand go. The more and more you walk with the Spirit, the more and more you realize you don't want to walk without Him. The more and more you walk with the Spirit, the more and more you realize that's the better way. The more and more you walk with the Spirit, the more and more you realize that that's the path towards flourishing, that that's the best life, that dependence on the Spirit over and over and over again, day in and day out. That's how this new life really starts to click and fire on all cylinders. So it actually works the opposite way. Owen grows as he learns to walk on his own. I grow as I learn that I never want to let go of the hand of the Holy Spirit, as he leads and guides and directs and empowers. So walk with your helper. Walk with your helper to wage war against your sinful nature. Helper. That's Jesus' name for the Holy Spirit from the Gospel of John. And that's a good image too. The helper. Because a lot of the time, I think we're confused by what it means on a daily basis to walk by the Spirit. It sounds nice. It sounds kind of sweet and picturesque. But it's kind of a squishy, churchy concept. Walk by the Spirit. That sounds good on Sunday, Paul, but how do I do that on Monday? How do I bring that idea to the rest of my life? And I think the image of the Holy Spirit as our helper propels us forward. Because you see, I know in my own life, walking by the Spirit most often realizes, most often means that I realize that I can't cut it on my own. That's step one. If I'm Owen walking in front of the the swing, and and I so often am, right? I so often think that I'm a brilliant walker and that I can do it on my own. So, So the moment comes either right before or during or after I get crushed by that swing. The swing of life, the great swing of life. And in that moment is when I realize I can't cut it on my own. And there's a moment, right, and I'm either lying on the ground, crumpled, hurt, or I've realized it before the swing hits me, or I've realized it after, I've realized it in the process, and there's a moment where I stop and I go, I can't do it, God. And then I pray the simple prayer. And this is truly, I think you boil down to the center of what it means to walk by the Spirit. I think it's a simple prayer every single day, every single moment of going, God, help me. God, help me. Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, Jesus called you the helper, help me. I prayer journal, I don't know if anyone else does, it helps keep me focused, I can get distracted in my prayers, so I prayer journal. And as I reflect, as I read over my prayer journal, I I, I realize how much I write the word help in my prayer journal. Help. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. And of course, there is far more that we could say. Far more that we could say about that concept, but that's the starting place. A willingness to admit that we can't make it on our own, that we're going to get crushed by that swing, and a readiness to ask God to help us. You're not fighting your battle alone, so walk with your helper. Well, the third key to living a new, changed life is cultivate the fruit. Cultivate the fruit. Paul includes two lists in this passage, and we've already covered the list of examples that gives in to the desires of our sin nature, that's in verses 19 and 20. But Paul contrasts that list with the fruit of the Spirit, which we find in verses 22 and 23. Look back at our passage of those verses with me. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now I'd love to go through each of these one by one, it'll be a valuable exercise, but instead we're going to use our time to focus on Paul's metaphor. He calls these characteristics the fruit of the Spirit, which is a brilliant metaphor because what do we know about fruit? Well, we know a few things. First, fruit is the result of miraculous hard work. Fruit is the result of miraculous hard work. Any farmers out there? Anyone that grew up on a farm? We're close to Kansas, right? I'm sure there's some farmers around. Farmers work hard, don't they? Watering, fertilizing, testing pH levels, planning around the seasons and weather, planting, harvesting. It's a lot of hard work. But what's amazing is that when it comes to that process of the fruit or the crop actually growing, it's just kind of a miracle, isn't it? Again, farmers work hard, gardeners work hard, but what they're doing is they're laying the groundwork, they're creating the best possible situation so that the crop, so that the fruit can grow. But then they step back, and the miracle of the growth of that fruit or crop takes over. It's miraculous, hard work. And the fruit of the Spirit is the same way. Did you notice? It's the fruit of the Spirit not the fruit of Christians. The Spirit produces the fruit miraculously in our lives. We do not. We cannot. But the Holy Spirit uses our effort, our work, to lay the, the, the groundwork to create the right situation for that fruit to grow. And this is why at Christ Community we talk about training in the spiritual discipline so much. What's the point of daily Bible reading? What's the point of an active prayer life? What's the point of fasting? What's the point of gathering together for worship? What's the point of pressing into community, to family, even when it's hard? What's the point of serving? I mean, none of these things actually cause you to grow, but they produce the right conditions so that the Holy Spirit can grow that fruit in your life. The daily disciplines, these are are the water that the Spirit uses to miraculously grow the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Cultivating fruit is a miracle that still requires our hard work. Second, fruit is slow and inevitable. Fruit is slow and inevitable. Have you ever sat for an entire day to watch a peach grow? No! Because we know that it would be incredibly disappointing. The growth of fruit is hard to see. It's impossible to see in minutes, in hours, or even days. Growth in fruit is better measure, measured in months or even years. But we forget that, I think. We forget that the growth of fruit is slow. And so then what do we do? Well, we play the comparison game, don't we? We, we look around at others and, and, and we... We start to feel bad about ourselves because they've got a bigger apple than I do. Well, of course they do. They've had months more, years more, maybe even decades more to allow the Spirit to grow that fruit in their lives. Every single one of us is on a growth journey, but every single one of us is is at a different place in that growth journey. So when we compare the fruit in our lives to the fruit in others, we set ourselves up for failure because the growth of fruit is slow. But it's also inevitable. Inevitable. You should, over time, be growing. If the Holy Spirit is really in you, you should be growing. Fruit is not optional for a fruit tree. An orange tree without oranges isn't just unique, it's sick, it's dying, or it's dead. And that can be a bit sobering. Because if you know Jesus, then over time you ought to be less bitter. Because you've grown in joy under hard circumstances. Less impatient because your love of difficult people has grown. Which, by the way, this is why community is so important, right? How can you grow In the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, if you don't have other people that you're doing this with. The letter of Galatians was written to a church, to a group of people. Sometimes we read this letter by ourselves, and and that's right and good, and we should do that, but then we only apply it individually. Arguably, the most important spiritual discipline to grow the fruit of the spirit is community. Because you can't grow in these things. You can't be patient if all you're doing is in your room all day alone. You've got to have some other people around you to be patient with. But over time, you will be less impatient because your love of difficult people has grown. You'll be less angry because you've grown in gentleness. You'll be less impulsive because you've grown in self-control. You'll have less canceled commitments because you've grown in faithfulness. And on and on and on. Growth is inevitable. It's inevitable. Finally, fruit is a sign of life. But it doesn't make the tree alive. Fruit is a sign of life, but it doesn't make the tree alive. What happens when you add live fruit to a dead tree? Nothing. Nothing happens. It does no good to try to add fruit to your life if it is not out of an overflow of the gospel that's taking root in you. Trusting Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on your behalf makes you alive and bears fruit. Trying to add love to your life without a new heart does no good. Fruit has to come from the inside out, not from the outside in. This is important. Because some of us deceive ourselves into thinking that we are growing in the fruit of the spirit, but all we're actually doing is taping live fruit to a dead tree. You know what happens when you do that? It rottens and it dies quickly. And we see this in the fruit of the spirit, don't we? Kindness on a dead tree becomes selfish ambition. You're nice to people, but only so that you can manipulate them for your aims, your, your own aims and goals. You're kind so you can control people or self-control. Self-control on a dead tree becomes rigidity. It becomes legalism. Live fruit rots on a dead tree. And this is why some, sometimes the most disciplined moral people are actually the ones that are the most dead trees. Because the fruit cannot bring life. It is a sign of life. And this brings us to our final point in the morning, our final key. I mean, there's more that we could say about the fruit of the Spirit, to be sure. But importantly, you'll never hear Paul talk about growth in the Christian life without ending on Jesus. He doesn't, importantly, complete his thought train at the end of verse 23. No, he continues on to verse 24, and this is what he writes there. He says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Yes, the second half of this verse is very important. We are to crucify the flesh. We are to to battle against and to fight against and to crucify, crucify the sinful nature that has its own passions and desires. That's important. But did you see that that came second? Did you catch the order? Yes, you are in a battle. Yes, you must fight. Yes, you should grow. But don't miss that first, at the top of that verse, first and foremost, you belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. That's the fourth key this morning, to live a changed life. You need to rejoice because you already belong to Jesus. Nothing makes fruit grow more than meditating on and rejoicing in the fact that you, in faith, already belong to Jesus. He has been crucified, so you can crucified. That's the order, and we can't flip it. Every other religious system flips it. Crucify your sinful nature, then you can come to Jesus. Clean yourself up, and then you'll be accepted by God. But Christianity is upside down. It's backwards. It's opposite. Because Paul says, Don't you know that you already belong to Jesus? That sinful nature, it's got nothing on you anymore. You already belong to Him. You are already a son. You are already a, des- a daughter. So rejoice. Rejoice. It's like the old hymn by Charles Austin Miles I'm in Christ now rejoicing. From old Adam, I am free. All old things becoming both new and heavenly. I'm tasting and enjoying life and peace and liberty. Praise God, I'm in Christ eternally. I mean, you just wonder if he was reading Galatians when he wrote that. The possibility of a new life in Jesus by the power of the Spirit. The more and more that we remember this, the more and more that we sing this beautiful melody over our lives, the more and more the fruit of the Spirit will grow inside of us. Without even realizing it, as we burrow deeper and deeper into the truths of the gospel, the fear, anxiety, anger, bitterness, selfishness, all of it will just melt away. And love will grow. Joy will grow. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all will grow church whatever is tempting you whatever is distracting you whatever is causing you to choose your sinful nature over the holy spirit spirit hear this this morning it pales in comparison because you belong to Jesus you are already his so rejoice and the more you rejoice the more you make that your posture the more the deeper roots of the gospel will go into your heart which means the richer the fruit in your life. Let's pray, asking God to help us with that right now. Father in heaven, we do rejoice. We do rejoice that we belong to Jesus. We're grateful, Lord, not only for the gift of Jesus, but also for the gift of the Holy Spirit who is so important to this process, who allows us to fight the good fight and fights with us to battle and destroy our sin nature so that we can become more and more like Jesus, so that we can We can live more and more and grow more and more the fruits of the Spirit within us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. May we keep on rejoicing, not only with our words, but with our lives. It is in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit that we pray. Amen.